false universalism finds opportunity when passive nihilism is ubiquitous, because passive nihilism is, is a kind of like conceptual weakness. Everybody. Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to be talking about the Z-Man, Zizek, and a recent take that he has um Britain um, about the Ukraine war and about issues in Europe and uh, more broadly with regards to uh, refugees and et cetera, et cetera. Is, is that about right, T-Roy? Yeah, I think it's kind of a, a nice little follow-up or um, epilogue to our discussion with uh, Prozorov from last time. Yeah, sounds good. So that's what we'll be discussing in the main segment. Um, as far as housekeeping, um, you know, make sure you follow us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Same on Insta. And then we've got some Patreon news. What's going on, Troy? Yeah, so we mentioned the last few episodes that we were soliciting topics for the next patron-sponsored episode. And so as of uh, this recording being published, that poll for patrons will be up. So there'll be four options, and you can vote on whichever you want, whichever topic you want us to cover on the next patron-sponsored episode. So if you're a patron, go to patreon.com slash and vote on your preferred topic. And if you're not a patron, then become one and do the same. And the topics are uh, to talk about the new drive film, Drive My Car, um, the idea of whether or not you can be in, what is it, an ethical CEO? Like a, a bougie class trader or an ethical CEO, uh, yeah. yeah. Or an ethical CEO. And then talk about the book of Job um, from La Biblia. And then the fourth one is about like the ideas of John Verveke. I mean, I've seen the name. I know he, I've seen him, I've seen him talk or I've seen the name, but I don't know too much about him. So, but yeah, those are the four that, um, we're going to be putting up there for y'all to vote on. So if you are a patron, make sure you cast your vote. If you're not a patron and you want to be able to vote, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And if you just have a couple extra pennies that you can throw at us, um, as I've said, we've got a new producer. It helps us getting new equipment and stuff like that. And so that we're not so busy with trying to do a thousand other jobs everywhere else. Um, <laughs> if you could throw a few pennies at us, that would be great. Patreon.com slash owls at dawn. All right, yep, let's yep. get into this madness. You know what we got to do before we start talking about the Z-Pack, the Z-Man. I'm amped and I'm fucking ready. It's a shitty minute, y'all. That's the part yeah. of the podcast where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? Maybe it's just because I watched Hamilton this week and the way that they used to handle political <laughs> disputes back in the day was they would just have a duel and you would like shoot a motherfucker. Maybe I'm just in I'm just thinking about war. OK, and I'm just thinking about like disputes at a political level. And I just don't understand war and how how this 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 is I'm painting a picture and maybe this is hyperbole, but this is how it seems it works. Right. This is how it works right now. OK. Country A invades country B. Forget about historical context. I don't care about any of that right now. That's not the point. Okay. I'm just talking about a skirmish breaks out. Uh, people are murdered, right? 
civilians are murdered, infrastructure is destroyed, economies are ruined, global supply chains are fucked, inflation becomes rampant. Um, there's consequences decades down the road from this set of actions, right? And then the war ends, and then homies just sit around a table and talk to each other afterwards? <laughs> like... Like, yeah, dude, we know that you fucking murdered thousands of people, destroyed the lives of many others, probably leading to deaths of others and definitely psychological and mental harm to others. But let's sit at a table now and let's talk about fucking wheat futures and let's talk about fucking energy costs and transitioning to a green economy. But we need your help, you psychopath that just went in there and murdered people like what the fuck, man? I don't know. And then here's the other thing. So the calls that you get right now with the Russia-Ukraine crisis are like, let's just let's just figure out what Putin's demands are. And let's even come to a diplomatic resolution, a diplomatic resolution. Lives have been lost. People have already been dead. What the fuck? It's almost like people are like, hey, let's just figure out how we can like stop the the collateral damage and then get back to something that's normal so that we can go back to eating freedom fries and going to the movie theater and stuff like that. And it's like, wait a second. And so oil prices and gas prices will drop. And then it's like, yeah, no, man, I just it just seems so fucking batshit insane that that. This, this like desire to get back to a normality or this desire to like somehow get to a diplomatic resolution. There is no diplomatic resolution when murder has occurred. You know, it's like remember that that book that I don't know if you ever read it by Miroslav Volf, the the you know the the Yale theologian guy. Um, yeah. He wrote the book uh, Exclusion and Embrace, and I remember Exclusion the and thing embrace, that. Yeah. Yeah, the thing that I took from that book more than anything was that, like, the initial harm is actually never covered, right? So, like, the whole Christian myth of, like, um, Jesus pays the, the the debts and then you just have, like, an equal, like, you had, like, a negative 500 in your account and now you're just back to level with God. That that's kind of, like, a bullshit interpretation of, of just the entire ancient world and how debts were always paid off and how it was understood. It never quite worked like that, right? There was always there, – there's never a way to actually, like – uh, to to get rid of the harm caused by the initial incision or cut or wound, right? Um, that the scar is still there or something. And, and then, so what that requires is that in, that requires like this constant active idea of embracing of this constant work, right? It's just it seems to me that like people are like they have this idea that like okay, yeah, you can cause some harms and stuff like that, but we're gonna get things back to. Back to where we can we can get to a, a, a diplomatic table at some point in the future where we can just talk about things peacefully. And I'm like, I, it just seems fucking crazy to me. It's just the way that the whole thing is done. And it's always like this, right? Like, I don't know. Does this and, – and I don't see people talking about this. Like, just the entire framework of this. And I just think it's batshit. So that's my shitty minute. Yeah, dude. I mean, there's so much to, to respond to there. But it does seem like – I mean, n not to put it too crudely, but – the idea of a white superpower invading another white country has broken people's brains because <laughs> we're, we're totally used to what happens when a superpower like invades the country. Of the Middle Eastern country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it's kind of like everything's priced in and we kind of know how to manage, but the effects that it'll have on you know global economies and supply chains and stuff like that. And it's usually a poor country, so it's not going to be too involved uh, in the global economy. Um, but there'll be some, you know, effects. There was stuff with Afghanistan and Iraq, um, when it came to that stuff too. And it was just kind of like, yeah, this is a, uh, this is a problem, but it's a problem to be solved and we have the tools to solve it. But this seems just so different. People's brains are broken by the idea 
uh, this happening. And, you know, coming straight from the idea that most everyone seemed to think Putin was grandstanding and that there was no, there was nothing to benefit from invading Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems to have broken people's brains in a way that uh, the the desire for normalcy and just like pretending it. Can we just like get to the point where it's two years from now and we and we just assume this never happened? Like yeah. The, the, the assumption that that's going to be the case in two years. Yeah. 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 That's how people are talking. Right. And then and then every once in a while you get someone that's like, oh, but there has to be regime change and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's still all very nice. And now I'm not saying that, like, I believe in some sort of Western form of punitive damage that should be the the law that, like, governs things and he should be hung for being a war criminal. Because I'm still angry about the idea that Bush, like, yeah, we just go in and fucking destabilize an entire region. Millions of people's lives are affected. And how many were dead? Like, was it millions of Iraqis were killed? Or is it hundreds of thousands? I think it was close to a million. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so you're talking about that. And then Bush just like gets to sit up there and retire in Texas and go hang out at the local fucking cafe where my mom can be like, oh, yeah, that's George Bush's. I, it's just fucking insane to me that, that that's how the world works. Right. Yeah, I'm fucking like, kissing you're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm losing my mind when I think about this. Like really when I like allow myself to go inward, I swear to God, I feel like I'm losing my goddamn mind. I'm like, this is crazy. And not more people are like, just the way that we do this shit is crazy. I don't know. It's yeah, I can't, I can't anymore. It's too much. Yeah. And kind of like the reverse side of it is the whole, what do you do when a nuclear power engages in clearly, you know, unjust, indefensible behavior on an international stage. And people don't know how to handle it. I'm sure that there's a lot of discussion over this in the during the Cold War. And there's, you know, there's lots of kind of international relations and political philosophy discourse about the idea that, you know, the the argument for um proliferating nuclear weapons is that it, it under like a, a, a realist rationalist schema, no one will use them because it just means the end of the world, right? So you kind of mm. put an end to hostilities because no one will actually use this weapon. Uh, but the other side of that is that if if one if one country that has nuclear weapons knows that nobody will use them, then they can kind of do everything they want up to a certain line, and then no one will retaliate because they have nuclear weapons. <laughs> um, so it's almost like you you can almost you know, do whatever you want because no one will fuck with you. Um, and that, that seems to have also broken people's brains because it's just like, yes, he's going to get away with it. And there's not much you can yes. do about it because they have nuclear weapons. And that's clearly that's right. unjust. Should have thought of that when you invented nuclear weapons. <laughs> yes. And now you have all these people that are like, well, you know, maybe the best, the best case scenario is that, you know, just give them Crimea, give them the Donbass region, stuff like that. And then it's like, wait a second. So you just get to be a fucking asshole because you've got a nuke and you're basically holding the rest of the world hostage and you just get to get away with whatever you fucking want. And maybe he's going to get what he wants in terms of demilitarization, whatever the fuck that means. And then regime change in Ukraine with Zelensky, like he's probably going to get a lot. He's going to, he's going to get something, a lot of things. Right. So it's like, it's just really weird that we have accepted this this kind of lowest common denominator for how to be humans in a global community, you know? And I think part of it has to do with like this high degrees of abstraction, right? Like like this is where Baudrillard was right about the Iraq war not happening. Obviously, he doesn't mean that 
that, you know, during Operation Gulf Storm, that like lives weren't lost, that there was an invasion. The point is that everything was mediatized and everything was um, always narrativized by this heightened mediatized kind of um, control narrative that it, it, it removes you from the the, the 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 possibility of there being a real right and i think that there's something going on here too which makes me really curious about reading prozorov's book on kind of post-truth um because i am kind of curious about the joseph vogel has recently written about this with regards to like economics which has kind of been interesting and i've just been thinking a lot about like when we're so detached from any possible signified or from any possible mooring or referent or whatever, when you end up bathing in that sea of, of just simulation and simulacra and kind of mediatized images, um, it, it makes people become like frantic and frenetic. And then I think the only way to kind of deal with that is you get a strong man who stands up and makes the decision and says, this is what we're going to do. And that's what you get with like a Putin regime, or that's what you get with like when Bush is invading something. And they're kind of just making an arbitrary decision to justify their own desires for legitimation. But I think this is all a product of, of being fundamentally detached from any sort of concept of like uh, – positive conceptions of how to live or any sort of like real elaboration of like a metaphysical grounding for how we ought to live life and how we ought to frame politics. And so we just are bathing in these like seas of swarming abstraction that give us nothing to hold on to. And so you, you either you either go crazy and you run around like chickens with your head cut off or you succumb to these like um, self-legitimizing powers that stand up and they try to give you some semblance of how they're trying to order the world, but how they're trying to order the world is crazy. You know, fuck the Washington consensus and fuck, you know, uh, bailing out banks too big to fail and fuck, you know, invading um, multipolar powers that are trying to resist the encroachment of these. Like, let's not accept any of it. Like, why are we accepting any of those narratives as being necessary uh, for for guiding the discussion in the first place, you know. Yeah, I mean, maybe this will be a good segue into our main topic. But I'm, I'm wondering how much how much that has to do with the fact that there just isn't a global community in any real sense. It's really just yeah. a group of individuals, and by individuals, I mean like individual countries or nations or societies or whatever. So there aren't really any norms that you can have any sort of authority over the global community, quote unquote, right? Um, in a way that, you know, even in a clearly unjust society, there will be authoritative norms that people point to and that are to some degree defended and that you can't sort of um, violate them without social repercussions. Whereas that, that that's clearly part of what's lacking here, right? Um, yeah. How, how much of it is that and how much of it is just, no, the difference is just nuclear weapons. Like, Mm. No individual person is so so much stronger than any other individual person that they could do, that they could approximate the difference between having versus not having nuclear weapons, <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, like this is something that that uh, political philosophers sometimes talk about. It's like there's something kind of unique about, about human beings, maybe not unique, unique like in like the metaphysical sense, um, where no individual can can dominate everybody else. Like, I think Hobbes talked about this at some point. Like, at some point, th the rest of the people can just gang up and kill anybody. There isn't a Superman, right? And, and mm. things would be really, really different if there was a Superman. Um, the fact that there's not means that there's certain sort of political 
political opportunities become available and social opportunities become available uh, where there's not a Superman. Our, our nuclear warhead's basically like a Superman. And then what happens when you have like 12 Supermen? Mm. <laughs> uh, it seems to throw the sort of the moral, you know, like the, the important moral concepts that we're used to out the window when that kind of difference yeah. is made available. Yeah. And, and let's say that we're officially now in the main segment, by the way, and we're going to talk about this Zizek article real quick. So I just want to say the title of the article is What Does Defending Europe Mean? It's by Zizek in Project Syndicate. We'll share the link of the article down below. Um, one of the things that gets brought up with regards to this, this Superman is that, and I've, I've listened and I've been reading a little bit recently about the influence of not just Ivan Ilyan, which is somebody that Zizek brings up in the article or links, mm. links to some other essays about like, what are the kind of like ideological drivers behind Putin's strategy, but also, um, Alexandra Dugan, right. Who is somebody who, um, has gained a lot of prominence among like the, the alt-right, um, neo, neo kind of nationalist types, um, in recent years. So a lot of people are starting to become more familiar with him and his work. Um, but one of the things that both, um, Ivan Ilyan, am I saying that name right? Ilyan? Um, and I think so, yeah. Dugan, yeah, the, and Dugan, one of the things that they argue is precisely what we're talking about in the sense that, and this really maps onto what Prozorov talks about in Void Universalism, how, you know, with passive nihilism, which is one of the kind of global frameworks where there is no overarching universal, there are just these competing regional narratives, right? Mm -hmm. And when you have a world like that, um, you know, there's oftentimes a response of a strong man who stands up and makes the decision, you know, the sovereign. And it doesn't have to be an individual. I don't just mean like a Putin because we don't want to lean too heavily into like the great man of history kind mm. of of stuff. Right. It's but the false sovereign is the key. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, that kind of stands up and and says, you know, I'm going to make the decision. Yeah, I recognize that there's just kind of competing fucking narratives and regional narratives and ours is going to be the one that we're going to throw um throw in with and now it's us versus them and i think that's kind of what putin is doing here it's a very sort of schmidian move by following the philosophy and when you read a little bit of dugan and of of Ilion, that's kind of one of the things that they talk about is kind of almost fabricating in the midst of the encroachment of the abstraction of capitalism which is ironic because there's like an anti-capitalism in there as well, a sort of mm -hmm. like anti-fragmentation is more that more more precise, maybe. Um, and what they say is, yeah, okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a cohesive narrative, and the cohesive narrative is going to be based around like national and cultural ideas that are going to unite us and singularize us, so that we can resist the constant encroachment of fragmentation. And now the way that Dugan. And now Putin are interpreting this is that what you have is you have the Western imperial hegemonic logic of the fragmenting forces of global capital. And um, Putin talks about like the decadence of the West, right? Um, he talks about the – as Prozorov talked about the LGBT ideology, which somehow signals to a weakness and a fragmentation um, and a, a non-Orthodox Christian way of interpreting humanity and culture and society, right? And Weakness and, being key there. That's why the reference to LGBT, right, is supposed to be signifying a kind of right. physical and mental uh, weakness. Yeah. And then and then what they do is to counter that perceived weakness is they dig their heels into a certain type of essentialism, you know, that like there's something Russian about us 
that is unique and different, that will never be colonized by this encroachment. There's something unique about our spirituality. And you get this in a lot of like interpretations of what's going on from those who are very influenced by Oswald Spengler. That there's something about like Russia is at a different stage of civilizational development, that they're in like their springtime, but that the West is in kind of like their winter. You know, the West is atheist and it's all about like um, the, the, the the consumerism and the artificiality and the materialism um, mm-hmm. that comes from from the, the throwing their lot in with the Mistopheles of capitalism, right? We've made the deal with the devil and we're dealing with the repercussions of that. And we don't have any metaphysics anymore. We don't have any positive notions, but they're in their springtime and that they've never been Western and they've never been European. And this is kind of Putin and Dugan and Ilion kind of bursting out of the kind of, well, two of them bursting out of, well, one of them bursting out of the grave and then two of them kind of bursting out through geopolitical maneuvers um, to try to say that, no, we are going to make sure that we ensure the proliferation of our essentiality as being not um, incorporated and appropriated by the, the the march of the European project, which has never been our project. And I think there's something important to understand where that's coming from and how that differs from what the European project is meant to be. You know? Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad that you you interpreted the piece this way because I wrote all this same stuff down, like the exact same oh, cool. stuff you just the cool. exact lineage, uh, conceptual lineage you just articulated is exactly what I wrote down and why I thought it'd be fun to talk about this. Um, I read it as a Prozoravian kind of piece, right? That's the what Zizek is saying is like fascism plus relativism. Um, is basically yes. the, the imperfect nihilism or the false universalism that Prozorov talks about, and. Prozorov's part of his point in in that typology there uh, or that taxonomy is that false universalism finds opportunity when passive nihilism is ubiquitous because passive nihilism is, is a kind of um, is a kind of like conceptual weakness, right? It's it's mm. sort of it's taking fragmentation and just accepting it. Um, now, what's what's important though to note about that is it's even though it partially agrees with the like imperfect nihilism point in, in critiquing passive nihilism, which would be the same as, you know, a lot of these figures are anti-capitalist. And so they have a kind of anti-liberal streak that will have some similarities to people who want to critique, you know, classic liberalism. But the super important point is that the, the imperfect nihilism or the false universalism is itself projecting its own weakness in doing that, right? Mm. It's covering, in Prozorov's terms, it's covering over the void, Right. Um, which mm. at least at least passive nihilism is it admits to the void. It's just not um, sort of like embracing it, right? It's it's sort of being wary of it or like acknowledging it and then like leaving or something. Whereas imperfect nihilism is so much worse, and of course fascism is so much worse than liberalism um, because it's it's covering over its the void. It's insecure, right? It's ultimately insecure. Mm. It refuses to admit um, its own emptiness, its own weakness, and so it projects weakness onto the other to cover over its own weakness. And then, of course, mm. has to accommodate for that in all these, you know, important psychoanalytic ways. So, uh, yeah, I read this piece the same way. I thought it was it was super helpful for thinking about um, a, a little like, uh, as I was saying earlier, a little epilogue to this discussion we had with Prozorov uh, last time. It'd probably be helpful, I think, to read the quote from Alexander Dugan that Zizek quotes. It's super interesting. And I wanted to kind of break it down with you. Cool. So before before you do that, let, let me just say that there's some really good work out there, particularly um, Alfredo Saad Filio. 
He's a Brazilian political economist who writes a lot about neoliberalism. And he's been writing over the last handful of years about what he calls authoritarian neoliberalism. I think Ian Bruff is also um, someone who has, I don't know if he's the one who actually coined the phrase, but there's something interesting about, I think it's easy to see Putin and Dugan as somehow not being postmodern, right? As somehow like they're traditionalists and they're like, they're they're somehow immune from the encroachment of the fragmentation of capital. But I think that's wrong. And I think that they are precisely, and I think this ties into exactly what we've been talking about. They perceive the weakness because they're integrated in global supply chains and mm-hmm. they are dependent on the global cultural manufacture of ideas and capitalism, not only as a mode of production, but as a means of rationality and a mode of rationality. And I think that the weakness that they're trying to ignore is what leads to their obsessive need to control it by making these kind of sovereign decisions. And so I think that we might be able to use that idea of authoritarian neoliberalism as being a real good moniker. I love what you said too, fascism and nihilism. And so I'm trying to think like fascism and nihilism and how that relates to like authoritarian neoliberalism and then how that relates to the passive nihilism of Prozorov. And I think that might be an interesting conceptual apparatus to help us understand here, but that I just wanted to throw that out there real quick. Yeah. No, good. Yeah. Um, so here's the quote from, from Dugan. Okay. Every so-called truth is a matter of believing. So we believe (laughs) in what we do. We believe in what we say, and that is the only way to define the truth. So we have our special Russian truth that you need to accept. If the United States does not want to start a war, you should recognize that the United States is not anymore a unique master. And with the situation in Syria and Ukraine, Russia says, no, you are not anymore the boss. That is the question of who rules the world. Only war could decide, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you almost room- wish you could, you could hear anybody else talk with that level of bluntness. <laughs> Fuck. I know. It, it, you actually, it, it's crazy to think that this guy's like literally one of the chief advisors. <laughs> You know, you're like, you're like, fuck, man. Um, I'm trying to find, I I had a discussion. I don't even think I need to find it. I had a discussion once with, um, I think it's called Mark Fisher's Haunt is the Twitter, um, the Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know who it is that runs it, but it's somebody who's like tweeting Mark Fisher ideas and Mark Fisher quotes and shit like that. I don't even know if they're still around, but it was a couple years ago. And I remember the discussion we had was about like one of the fallouts of the of the quote unquote postmodern condition, or we could even use like Jameson's terminology of like, you know, postmodernism as being the cultural logic of late capitalism. There's something about this this cultural unsettledness. Um, I keep using the word fragmentation, but I think that's maybe a good way, you know, that everything that is solid melts into air, sort of Marxian idea. Um there's something that what happens as a reaction to that is that people start clamoring for something to hold on to. And maybe this is one of the reasons that explains why there's so much of a turn towards like um, neo-paganisms, right? Or new age spiritualities that are in the West, that it's it's people, they're not getting any sort of foundational things to hold on to. There's no cultural ethos writ large that they can care about, that they can invest in, right? Um, people aren't patriotic anymore. We don't trust our politicians. The media is is something to be skeptical of. We don't trust fucking vaccine manufacturers, you know? Like, we just don't trust. And so because of that, we're looking for something, but it takes a very the form of like a very individualistic pursuit that we're also 
fed as being like a positive way for us to enhance ourselves, becoming entrepreneurs of ourselves in these pursuits as we can ground ourselves in nature, you know? Um, and one of the things that I wonder is if the Dugan quote is kind of doing something similar because it's, it's like boasting in this like fabrication of trying to hold on to something. And for him, it's a particular Russian-ness, whatever that Russian-ness is, right? It's holding on to this Russian-ness that grounds us in the sea of the fact that, well, we just have to fabricate beliefs and then we hold on to those beliefs. And so when we do that, it's, it's what is the counter narrative that you're grounding yourself in, right? That, that matters for them. It's this like Eurasian Russian, there's actually a word derived from in one of the articles that, um, is linked, um, Ilion and Putin has like said it like, he's like, yeah, I fully believe in this idea. It's, um, hold on, let me find it. Oh, I don't, I think I closed it. Oh no, here it is. It's, um, it's from Ivan Ilion and, uh, it's this idea of, uh, oh no, actually, you know what? It comes from Lev Gumilev, um, who also Putin has quoted, but the word is passion or passion arnost. So it's like passion and then A-R-N-R-O-S-T. So passion arnost. And I don't know how you would say it, but it has to do with this biocosmic inner energy or passionate substance that every people like every people group possesses, and it's a distinct life force. Um, the Pashinarnos and Putin, um, and I guess Gumilev, the guy who came up with this idea, were friends in St. Petersburg in the 90s. And then in February of last year, Putin said, I believe in Pashinarnos. In nature, as in society, there is development, climax, and decline. Russia has not yet attained its highest point. So that means they're still in that development. They still see themselves in that fucking Spanglerian, we're in the springtime sort of thing, right? And then he says, Russia has not attained its highest point. We are on the way. So according to him, and then he said this further, they, they carry the power and potential of young people. We possess an infinite genetic code, he said. So that's like the fucking narrative that this Dugan quote is kind of also tied into is this need to like naturalize and essentialize because they're aware of the nothingness that is on offer from the uh, globalized financial forms of, of late neoliberal capitalism. That's, that's kind of what I think. Uh, imagine believing that there's like a deterministic teleology to culture. <laughs> <laughs> Decadent Westerners would never. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's so but here's strange. The, but, here's, but here's the thing is it, it's empowering them, right? Because oh, it's yeah. like, it's like an, an ignoble lie, you know? I mean, it's empowering it's, because it's replacing a real emptiness. Yeah. There's a, there's a real emptiness at the heart of um, a sort of like, you know, late capitalist neoliberal vision of not just the, like society in general, but also the world order. Um, and the, probably the world order because of society being uh, such an empty vessel for just, you know, transaction and whatever. Um, that's debilitating and disempowering. And so that opens up space for something, you know, really ugly to take its place. Hmm. Did you want so to say more? To, uh, yeah, go ahead. You know, it's just so weird to hear a public figure talking about, about basically like just advocating relativism, right? As you were saying, like the, 
um, belief is like our truth is constituted by what we believe. It's a matter of what we believe, whatever we say, right? We define truth in this way. And then also talk about like this and the special Russian truth that we have, right? Mm. Um, this like passionate essence or whatever. Um, and then immediately moving from that to therefore, like we're, we're the boss now. <laughs> we realize this and nobody else does. So we're the boss and war will decide. And it automatically goes into this like intense, you know, power struggle, Schmidtian decision, whatever thing going on. Right. Um, even in, even in like the American conservative uh, movement, that's, that's sort of taken on some of these features, right. In the past, you know, decade or two, mm-hmm. I'm not sure you quite see that. Like you see some like, inkling of that. Um, but for some reason, it really seems to be in Eastern Europe where you see much more of it, like maybe with, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary and stuff like that. Yeah. I, w- I wonder what it's, I wonder why, I wonder why, I wonder if it's because we have tried for so long to tell ourselves, like our lie is the marketplace of ideas, you know, like that's, that's our lie. Our lie is, um, the invisible hand of the market. Our lie is spontaneous organization. You know, that kind of Hayekian idea. That's our lie. And so that requires much less of a strong arm. That requires a sort of like, okay, as long as we have like information, right? We want, we want, we want to have all, all the information. And as long as we have that, then we'll be able to have some sort of of truth and ideals, you know, and, and that takes place at the level of the individual person rather than the sovereign, you know, whereas maybe with Turkey, Russia, maybe China, um, what you get is less a valorization of those like infinite flows of, of information and data that are meant to then climb up to knowledge in an inductive sense for them they kind of are they operate deductively we might say you know starting from the ideas that are fabricated from the mouth of the sovereign or the ideals of the sovereign and not necessarily the sovereign as a person but the sovereign as itself being maybe a structure and a system that's that's kind of inherited and it might take on different forms you know from yeltsin to putin it might be different but nevertheless there still might be some sort of logic that um that persists because it's inherited because it's being learned. And so you become enculturated through that. You know, what do you think? Yeah. I wonder how much of it has to do with like, you know, one thing you see as a, as a through line, um, in a lot of the Eastern European, um, countries where these kind of movements are taking hold. And then also China as a kind of separate parallel version of this is a narrative of humiliation. Right. So like Mm -hmm. in China, they call the, like mid, like mid nineteenth to mid twentieth century or whatever, the the century of humiliation, right? Mm. And there's a there's a strong uh, narrative of you know China reoccupying its place as an important world power uh, after being humiliated. Um, and Russia obviously has this narrative of humiliation, right? They can't stop talking about the U.S. <laughs> Everything they do is about how it, we're doing this, but it's the U.S.'s fault. <laughs> um, which of course is a grain of truth and all that stuff, right? But um, the fact that it that is always referenced in everything just shows you that there's a lot of you know projection going on and stuff like that um, of being humiliated by the by the West. Mm. And 
And I imagine the same in some of the smaller European countries that have these nationalist movements as well. And maybe the U.S. just hasn't ever had a sort of like a like a humiliating historical moment in the same way. And maybe the proof of concept there is that there are micro humiliations, right, um, at the sub national level. That's a, a big part of the sort of conservative uh, reactionary movement after Obama was this kind of strange rhetoric about being humiliated by a elitist condescending president. And so every, every even like mm. milk toast liberal, like Joe Biden, who ends up running for president, the Democrat gets cast as this like Ivy league, right. Um, PhD who just, you know, th- thumbs their nose down at the rural conservatives and their simple ways of life or whatever, right? And it's why when you talk to conservatives, you know, I, I live in a, in a red state, um, the, the things that come up the most are the comments from Obama about God, guns, and religion, right? They're going to, mm. you know, hold fast to God, guns, and religion. And, and then Hillary's comment about the deplorables. Like that's the stuff that comes up the most because it's a kind of humiliating thing and it yeah. like, empowers, right? And so... It does seem like the through line here is is some kind of humiliation, which then spurs on this reactionary or supposedly spurs on this reactionary movement. And maybe the U.S. just hasn't had a national humiliation um, that would lead to unity around that. Right. It's still very much a, um, a minoritarian phenomenon. Right. Even if it was able to get Trump elected, it only got him elected because we live in a country where minorities can win national elections for some godforsaken reason, right? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, I like this idea of humiliation um, because humiliation also has to do with like a like a humbling, like a bringing down. And resentment is this affective, it's this affectively fueled frustration, maybe experience of humiliation in relationship to another person who has something that you want, status, power, an object, you know, um, intelligence, whatever. And one of the, one of the kind of other fueling components of maybe the micro humiliation that you're talking about in the United States is that the liberal party really does I mean, like the Democratic Party and like, you know, center left liberals, the elitists oftentimes have this mentality. And I use elitists intentionally because there is this like paternalist and and patronizing, like, well, admit what you did kind of demand. And there's an effort to humiliate. Right. As well. So it's not just the experience of of being humiliated, but it's it's almost like a pushback. What you get like in the anger of people who are voting for a Trump or of people who are like kind of clamoring down and like latching on to the 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 Hillary's use of deplorables as like a fuel that's going to drive their resentment more, their anger more is because they're like, no, these motherfuckers are trying to humiliate us. They're trying to like smack me on the wrist for bad behavior 
but all I want to do is fucking feed my family. Or that's maybe like glossing a little bit over too much some of the other shitty racist ideas and homophobic ideas and things like that. So I don't just mean that. But I mean like um, – but, but I think kind of at the abstract level at least it's like, no, stop trying to humiliate me for my ideals. Now, some of those ideals, for example, homophobia, are things that you should be held accountable for and that maybe we should fucking move past and you should – you know, relinquish your bad interpretations of your religious tradition of so that you can actually grow the fuck up and have a more mature spiritual and a mature social sensibility. Um, but the way of doing that at least just kind of perpetuates this like relationship of, um, that's going to just, that's just going to just create more resentment because of those feelings of humiliation. Right. And then, what happened when Trump won is the right enjoyed so much that they weren't humiliated. And then <laughs> they were rubbing that shit in the face of the center left and the libs. And guess what the center libs did? They cried and they scapegoated. It was Russia's fault. It couldn't be us because they had no capacity to look inward either. So neither of them have any capacity to look inward. And it just creates this impossible connection for communication. Yeah, this is, so you use the term, um, accountability, right? And so I'm thinking about, so like accountability and responsibility are key moral terms, right? And what kind of relation does humiliation have in a moral framework where responsibility and accountability are the kind of things we want to talk about? Like what are those consistent, right? And I think you're exactly right. Humiliation is interesting in this case because it, it disables the possibility of effective communication. And if you do that, then it's impossible to even have any sort of conversation or, or build in any way towards accountability or responsibility, right? If you feel humiliated by somebody, it's not possible for you to act on ways that you would find independently like responsible towards them. It's just not possible, right? That's what humiliation does. It like it breaks the the sort of moral cords between people such that they can no longer think of how they ought to act with respect to them. It's just about it's even rationally, I think this is true. If you're if you're honestly humiliated by somebody else, then you're before you can even try to build back the moral, you know, bonds between you, you have to, you have to sort of end the humiliation or like restore the balance of power between you. Right. Cause you yeah. can't treat someone like a moral equal until they actually are in some sense an equal. Right. And when you've been humiliated, you've, you've been made an unequal. Right. Um, so that, that seems to be what's attractive about humiliation. Cause you might wonder like, like why do all these strong men, um, and this like conservative movements all over the world talk so openly about being humiliated. That's kind of weak, isn't it? Like, oh, I've been humiliated. That means you have power over me. It's kind of admitting to a kind of passivity, like that you don't have control over things. Like, like the, the noble strong man of, of, you know, yesteryear or whatever doesn't admit to being humiliated because they're just too strong for that. Like, you can't humiliate me. Fuck you. Right. Um, <laughs> but now they talk so openly about it. Like, what's with that? It, it seems so weak. But what it does is it kind of excuses somebody from and allows them to sort of exit out of the moral bonds. I can no longer be told that I need to be accountable or need to be responsible because the most important thing is restoring this um, relation of equality between us. And of course, the whole thing's a lie, right? Um, it's just really an excuse to treat people horribly and, and still feel like you're in some sense justified for doing so. Um, 
crucially though, it's not an escape from, from justification, right? You could just be like, fuck you. I'm taking what I want. Right. Um, but they won't do that. Right. There's some sense in which they're still bound to like moral thinking. So they have to come up with this humiliation excuse to give them a reason to be justified in engaging what would otherwise be extremely unjust and immoral behavior. So it's just like weird ideological infrastructure that has to take place to justify, um, these actions. And it's just a, a weird way that like a, the, the neoconservative logic works in a way that's it's pretty divorced from, I think, some of its forebears. Hmm. Uh, what do you think um, this has to do with like a, a Putin figure, right? Like, is he experiencing a humiliation as well? And that maybe the, 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 the multipolar myth or like the, the passion Arnost myth that that's a way of him covering over his own perceived weakness? Like, I mean, this is like total, like, psychoanalytic, let's let's get on my couch, uh, old, old Putin, but what do we think? Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is who the fuck knows, right? Um, yeah. Apparently Putin's, like, in a, in a room with, like, two people at this point. Um, so almost no one's privy to his thinking. Um, but there seems to be something about... You know, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about um, Putin seeing himself as in like a long lineage that stretches back to like Ivan the Terrible, to Peter the Great, to yeah. Stalin, to himself. And and seeing not the radical change between some of those regimes that we in the West would probably see, but seeing instead a kind of through line of like Russian greatness mm. that gets upset and humiliated in the early 90s. And then um, with the kind of Western-backed oligarchs taking over in the mid-90s and then Putin in what, 97, quote-unquote, delivers Russia from Western power. <laughs> um, and they sort of attempting to still be in like 1997 or whatever and restore uh, <laughs> Russian greatness. Yeah, there seems to be something about that. And that it all seems to go back to this, this sense of humiliation and, and, and justifying or finding ways mm. to justify acting in these in these really strange ways that don't really make a lot of sense from like a real politique um point of view right like if you're if you're if you're looking at this with the international relations kind of deflationary logic of you know every every actor is just rationally accumulating and satisfying their preferences the, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense <laughs> mm. um so there has to be much more going on than that i mean exactly what it is who knows it's, it's probably a lot of stuff that we're not really privy to um, but yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's something about this sort of warped and bastardized moral logic that's happening here. And it seems to go back to what we we're talking about during your shitty minute, uh, about, you know, the fact that there really aren't solidified norms that are authoritative in the international sphere. And then you throw in nuclear weapons and the weird imbalance of power that they allow, they allow there to be a Superman amongst regular mortals. Hmm. And that just warps all of our moral thinking and allows for some of this weird shit to end up taking hold on people's minds. And also just like the moral rot <laughs> of human beings in the world in the 21st century has to play a part yeah. in that too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm also I don't know, what do you think? Too, yeah, I'm thinking beyond just like a personal psychoanalytic critique, if we can broaden it out and do like a social psychoanalytic critique or a socioeconomic one – there is maybe also a sense in which this is almost like a stress test for Russia's autonomy. 
So they're not idiots. They knew that there would be sanctions applied. Um, the extent of the sanctions, maybe not. But the I, I almost wonder if this is kind of a way for them to see. Like I've heard people say that the economy is going to contract anywhere from 7%, the Russian economy is going to contract anywhere from 7% to like 20 or 30%, right? I mean, 20 or 30% is just fucking catastrophic. Um, 7% is almost double what we experienced in the Great Recession. For us, I think it was like 4.3%. So, mm. um, I mean, maybe not almost double, but like, you know, what, like 80% um, more, right? Um, so that's that's a lot. That's Those are big contractions. Um Bank liquidity is 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 tightening. Um, global supply chains are being cut off, which means that they're not going to be able to import like parts for other aspects of their um, manufacturing manufacturing um, processes. You know, so what I wonder is 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 like are they kind of doing like like we'll see how long and how far we can go by being cut off or by having to deal through back channels, which they're going to do, right? You know, go to the informal market, um, mm -hmm. dealing through back channels, which they can do to what extent, I guess, is the question. And so what that makes me wonder is, is, is this like sort of like almost like, um, like risk management or like fucking, um, like some kind of, yeah, like a stress test or like, like the weakness that's perceived is that Putin and them realize how reliable or how, how, um, how much Russia currently relies on the kind of global, global, um, fragmentation of the economic processes. And, and then, so what I wonder is, is maybe if, if that's what's being perceived. So not like a personal weakness or like a cultural weakness or something like that, but also a kind of like, a, okay, so we're, we're maybe a little bit too reliant right now, you know, and we need to set up, um, an alternative, a long-term alternative strategy, you know, getting more invested with China in the Belt and Road Initiative long-term, getting more invested with Turkey, getting more invested with the countries that are not allied with the kind of, you know, Kool-Aid of the, of the Western capitalist ideology, you know? And so part of me wonders if that's maybe also something that's going on here. And, and maybe that's a bit of like a long-term, like macro, like, uh, I, and I don't think it's like, like strategy, like we're going to do this and then we're going to see how far we can push it. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's, if there's some truth to that, you know, to see like, okay, how far can we go by being disconnected from the kind of like faucet of, um, of, of, of like the Western, um, of the Western resources, you know? So I wonder if that's also another way to think about it. Yeah. I like to use the analogy of the stress test, right? Cause it does seem like, like I was saying a minute ago, if, if you look at this, the action of invading Ukraine from a realpolitik perspective, it doesn't make any sense. And that's why a lot of people didn't expect Putin to actually do it, right? It was all just kind of grandstanding, it was thought. And so you need like a new framework to try and understand what the logic is here. And we're, we're kind of trying to, you know, piecemeal it together. We're talking about these ideas about uh, how to incorporate relativism and postmodernism and false universalism yeah. and all this stuff and humiliation and whatever into it. And so it seems like the stress test is, okay, and I think Putin's even said this in some of the speeches. He said like, we've had suffering before. 
and Russia. In fact, we're used to it, right? We've suffered a lot at the hands of the West. <laughs> uh, and so we'll do it again, but we'll stand tough and, and true through it because we know that it's ultimately for the sake of Russian greatness and we will win in the end or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, and there is a logic of like, when you're in this this place of feeling humiliated and wanting to restore equality with the humiliator, then you're willing to suffer as long as you have autonomy in the suffering or you feel like you have autonomy in the suffering. So as long as you're doing it to yourself rather than the humiliator doing it to you against your will, that's actually an empowering kind of suffering. It's like a good kind of suffering. Like you affirm it, mm. right? And so that seems to be the way that, that Putin's casting it for Russians. It's like, yeah, this is going to suck. Like there's going to be lines for food and we're not going to be able to go to the ATM and get money and you're going to... You know, you know, not have all the the Western luxuries and iPhones and whatever and stuff and social media that you want, but know that we're doing it to ourselves for the sake of Russian greatness or whatever. It's not being done to us by an external outside force, right? We're voluntarily doing it. We're taking on the sanctions. Like we're doing, we're doing, we're sanctioning ourselves. Really, if you think about it, um, and that being a way of like stress testing. Okay, how strong is this ideology? Mm. Because if it means four times the the great recession or whatever of economic contraction then and and still people are willing to to go through it um without revolting and then you know the oligarchs don't revolt or anything then that means that this this ideology is much more powerful than probably anybody else thought and i'm like i don't know the answer to that i have no idea uh i could see it, it, it really being that strong and people in russia buying into it or at least kind of being like oh well like what else are we supposed to do right um, yeah. Or maybe it's not. And the, the sort of, you know, neoliberal uh, ideology is too strong and the oligarchs like have a coup. I don't know. I feel like it could go either direction. Um, but that seems to be what's happening. And that, that's the stress test. How strong is this ideology? Yeah. And maybe it's the sort of thing where it's like, you know, sometimes you go five steps forward and three steps back and eight steps forward and seven steps back. And sometimes you go one step forward and then 15 steps back. And then so maybe this is like trying to see like, okay, well, let's fucking in their minds, let's take 50 steps forward and they'll accept, you know, 20 steps back because of international pressure, because, okay, well, I guess we do have to pay for, you know, our actions, but it's not going to be like severe enough to destroy the ideology, but, you know, we'll deal with, you know, the next five years or so of, okay, you know, we got a slap on the wrist from the international community and we, we do, we have to pay some, um, some reparations or, you know, there's some sort of costs, you know, that are going to come out of this, but, but ultimately we still are 30 steps ahead <laughs> because of what we did, you know? And so they're strategizing. It kind of reminds me, and I don't know if this is true because I don't want to attribute too much like genius to, to, to these world actors. Cause I don't know how much that is true, but it kind of reminds me of, you know how like SoftBank has like that fucking 300 year plan. They're like the fucking meta platform from Japan and they're, they like own Uber. They, they own like Uber and Lyft. <laughs> they own like these competing firms, but they're like, fuck it. they literally have like a 300 year plan for what they're going to be their investment strategy moving forward. Right. <laughs> and so it kind of makes me think that like, if they're like looking at the long term, they're like, Hey, you know what? Like, We'll take we'll take um, twenty steps back if that means that you know we got thirty steps ahead and then and then we'll see where the dust settles and we'll still act from that thirty steps ahead while you're still patting yourself on the back for getting those twenty steps back we're like fuck yeah we're ramping up for the next fifty step forward you know what I mean like 
it seems that they have a vision for the future that is like propelling them. I don't know that the West does. I, there's this great essay from a sociologist named Ole Bjerg who wrote a book called What Money Wants, but he wrote a book, um, he wrote an essay in, I think it's, oh fuck, I can't, it's, a, it's, in, it's in an edited volume, but it's an essay on um, like the, the contemporary capitalist global economy as not operating according to the logic of desire, but according to the logic of drive. And he uses Zizek, um, Zizek's Lacanian interpretation of drive. The ultimate idea being that desire requires an object, right? The object petit-a, the object cause of desire, to instigate desire. Now, at an individual level, consumer capitalism still obviously operates that way, right? And Bjerg admits that. But at the macro level, he says once you pull out and you look at the macro operations of capital, there's no fucking object. It's just compulsive. And he wrote a book in like 2009 or something like that on gambling and like gamblers uh, and, and capitalism. And it's something similar that gamblers, like if I go to gamble right now, the idea is, oh yeah, I'm going to gamble so that I can get money. So that's the desire, right? But when you are a compulsive gambler, it's like he actually he uses this quote all the time from this one uh, really famous gambler who says like the only thing better that winning at gambling is losing at gambling, and yeah. and Didn't because the idea <laughs> that's it. So that's at a macro level, the West the the logic of capital is just revolving around the the void of nothingness, which is kind of like what Zizek talks about as kind of like characterizing the drive. And Bjerg talks about how that's kind of what defines this contemporary moment of macro capitalist um, striving is that there's nothing that it's fucking striving towards, right? But with Putin, with China, with SoftBank, right? There's a fucking, there's a desire, there's an object, right? They, they're aiming for something. And then in the same sense of the logic of the hyperstition that we've talked about previously and that I wrote about in my book is that when you project that forward object, like Dugan talks about, kind of projecting that object, that fantasy, that belief that you just invest yourself in, it has a redoubling effect where you cast that image so that it motivates you in the present affectively so that you are impelled forward. And that seems like a very different strategy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's really an actual fantasy, though, in here. As a fantasy, that's concrete in any way. It really seems to me more like the, I mean, here's the, the Dugan piece, right? He talks about all this, like, you know, post-truth, whatever bullshit. And then it's like, that means the U.S., you're not the boss anymore. We're the boss, right? We rule the world. Uh, or the world the, uh, world rules up for grabs at that point. But desire idea. always operates that way, right? That there's no real object. It's always a fantasy. No, but I'm saying I'm not sure there's any actual like concrete fantasy. Like, I, I don't know that anyone can even oh. articulate what that would look like. It's always it's oh. never like, okay, and here's what the rule <laughs> looks like, right? No, it's not that. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's about restoration of autonomy. It's like, no, mm. we're humiliated and we're going to restore proper balance in the relations here. And by doing so, we're probably going to like, you know, kick you in the nuts or whatever. Mm. Um, although, you know, maybe that means like blowing up your nuts if you're talking about nuclear warheads. Um, so it does seem like there's there's this this need to restore balance in this like super violent way because it's perceived the slights that have been perceived are themselves you know perceived as being violent, um, and the longer that this the resentment is stoked, the more it becomes unhinged from like 
any sort of moral logic where, you know, the proper balances are actually articulated or understood in any way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I got to think about the desire and drive thing. Um, but it does seem like if in, in maybe old school kind of nationalism, there are these kind of fantasies, right? Certainly in like Nazi Germany, right? Um, there's a pretty well articulated kind of fantasy working there. I just, these things seem so driven by resentment right? Yeah. and, and humiliation, these really morally loaded terms that, and maybe that's just my own bias because these, these are the kind of things that I think about, but because the discourse is so loaded with these things, it seems like it's not really even about some ideal Russian world or ideal Russian culture dominating the world or whatever. Like it's not even gotten to that point yet because it's just all resentment all the way down. Hmm. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Well, okay. This, so this then, good, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say we should talk about the the thesis in Zizek's piece, the last last little bit here, because maybe <laughs> that's what help. I was going to say. Because it's actually kind of a good way to, yeah, yeah. What's the counter? Yeah. Yeah. Because this we've been talking all about like you know Russia and stuff we don't really know anything about, right? But let's kind of bring it back home um, and think about what this means for us, because this is the thing I worry a lot about, which is yeah. yeah we talked about how we have kind of like micro versions of this kind of discourse happening in the conservative movement here, right? And uh, it's certainly more in its first fruits than it is as fully developed as it is in places like Russia or Hungary or, or China or whatever. But it exists, and that kind of narrative of humiliation and, and, and need for autonomy and stuff exists here. And it makes me wonder, like, when you exit the, the moral discourse, because, you know, claiming you've been humiliated is a way of exiting the moral discourse like you were saying in your in your shitty minute that's when like the gloves come off and you go to take a duel right because it's no longer about <laughs> about what i ought to do and, and the moral norms that govern society you know it's like so, some bitch got to die mm-hmm. um and that's, that's not actually how duels work didn't, it didn't like 90 percent of duels never even end in a shot like it's just kind of like yeah, standing way to make they a like, point yeah they would shoot into the ground or they would shoot into the air or something and that's if you like yeah yeah exactly yeah but that besides, you know, the, the really, really old school version that bitch got to die. So here is the thesis at the end of Zizek's little piece here. He says, the Russian truth, quote unquote, is only a convenient myth to justify Putin's imperial vision. And the best way for Europe to counter it is to build bridges to developing and emerging countries, many of which have a long list of justified grievances against Western colonialization and exploitation. It's not enough to defend Europe. The true task is to persuade other countries that the West can offer them better choices than Russia or China can. And the only way to achieve that is to change ourselves by ruthlessly uprooting neocolonialism, even when it comes packaged as humanitarian help. So he's talking there about the way that Western countries can sort of advertise themselves to the, those who are outside of the the West versus Russia, China nexus or whatever. Right. Mm. Um, but I'm thinking about it and we can talk about that if you want, but I'm thinking about it. Like how do you advertise within a society where you have this kind of rhetoric emerging and gaining some stranglehold on a certain you know minority of people? Like when people have decided to exit the discourse where due respect towards another citizen who has a good faith view of the world and you want to respect it and you want to be in a democracy where you come to, you know, you negotiate and you come to compromise over how to live together and all that kind of, you know, good stuff that we would all love to have. When people exit that discourse, 
is it possible to get them back in or is that it just done at that point? Right. And you know, in like individual relationships, when that happens, it seems like it's kind of a death knell and it's extremely difficult to bring it back to a place of like respect and um, mutual humility and understanding and stuff like that. Like it's hard enough to do that at an individual level where where at least people have some Mm. sort of control over their behavior. How do you do it at a social level where the actors are not, um, are not individuals that can in some sense control their behavior. Right. And so, yeah, it, it makes me really worried that when you, and people talk a lot about political polarization, it's all this whole like, you know, literature now around what exactly is polarization? How do you resolve it and stuff like that? And so I guess maybe what I'm talking about is like a cousin to that, but it's more just like when this sort of rhetoric becomes really persuasive to people and it's like understandable that it is like there's, there's certain dynamics that have, that have, that have happened that have um, developed uh, the discourse to be the way that it is. Do you come back from that? Is it possible mm-hmm. to come back from that? Or is it just further deepening and further deepening of that rhetoric? Cause you know, humiliation begets resentment begets being the humiliator, right. Or further humiliation or whatever. And I don't know. That's like my biggest worry is that. Yeah. Like what are the conditions for embrace to talk about that exclusion and embrace book? Mm. What, what are the conditions for forgiveness? What are the conditions for reconciliation? Um, yeah. I mean, we have all kinds of like trite responses to this and answers to this, but like to really implement it politically I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, one of the things I wonder is if we just take Zizek's phrasing and see how far we can go with it. He says um, something to the effect of we need to ruthlessly uproot neocolonialism. And so what I wonder is because I don't think of neocolonialism as only being something that exists um, outside of the borders of a domestic country. But I think of it as being part and parcel of the processes of financialization that take place um, everywhere. I think that we could in some ways think of finance as as operating essentially by a neocolonialist logic. Right. And so then what I wonder is, is, is there a sense in which we can recognize the grievances from many who are feeling resentment because, um, you know, of the cessation of manufacturing jobs or of the feeling that their communities have not been invested in um, or that their communities um, have been left behind. Now, there's always going to be some people that just aren't going to get on board no matter what, right? Of course, of course, of course. But is there a greater sense in which we might be able to correct some of these tendencies of plunder and exploitation Um, that have then turned people into workers for the furtherance of these financial flows by creating forms of immaterial labor and affective labor that are still being experienced? Are there ways to reverse that through positive forms of not indebtedness, but rather forms of equity, right? Forms of um, investee politics is sometimes what it's called. Michelle Fair writes about this, Um, 
who I've been very influenced by? Is there a way to to positively try to build up by giving people equity stakes in domestic resources? And I don't just mean physical resources, but information resources, social resources, cultural resources, as well as natural resources and productive resources. Intellectual right? social way- wealth funds. <laughs> yeah, fucking A, dude. It's fucking A. Like, is what would that look like? I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be traded on markets, but there's some sort of sense in which, you know, uh, I don't know. What would an intellectual fund, for lack of a better term, like what would that look like? It would be like a a portfolio uh, that people all engage in and, and get some sort of return in, you know, rather than fucking polemical squabbling through flame wars, you know, because the media is, you know, trying to cause divisions to sensationalize so they can increase ratings, you know, and then they're sort of siphoning off fucking value from people. Um, It's things like that, that I wonder, is that the way forward? Like, is is that the way to do it? And for me, I just keep thinking in terms of like a shift from indebtedness to equity. Right. Like that everybody becomes a participant, a shareholder, an owner, mm-hmm. um, you know, something along those lines. And I, I don't know. Co- some people don't like that language of society, a co-determiner of society, a co-determiner yeah. of society. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that 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 would uproot the neo-colonial logic. Right. That's why I wanted to start it with Zizek's phrasing, like because the neo-colonial logic is part of the larger macro system that affects us domestically and internationally. So maybe something along those lines would go some way in uprooting the tendency towards neocolonial extraction. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously super down with that. Um, And I feel like there's two, so here's the thing. Zizek is is pointing this piece and I think you're pointing your, um, your proposal there towards the same thing towards like those in society or perhaps in the world society who have justified grievance, right? So if someone feels humiliated and at an political sense, humiliated, um, and is justified in doing so, then the good thing about that is that they have a, a proper resentment, mm. which then if, if you as an actor, as like a moral actor, recognize that, right, and admit to fault and then seek to engage in reproachment, then if the person had justified grievance and resentment, it will go away in time, right, Mm. or at least no longer become active in the way that it was before. It's like a dominating motivator. And that's good. That's how moral relations are supposed to work, right? You're supposed to feel resentment when you're actually humiliated in in an individual or political way. And then that that resentment is is a signal towards the um, the violator that they need to do some work, like they need to fix this shit, right? Mm. Um, and so you can do that. I think you you make a more just society, and the people who have been humiliated by injustice will then begin to engage in like reproachment with you, right? If you're the violator, like that's good. That that's that's embraced, right? That's how it's supposed to work. What do you do though with the people who haven't really experienced humiliation? In the, in, the, in the same way, right? Like a real political humiliation, but instead are just driven by like revenge. Like they don't really want reproachment or embrace. They want revenge. Mm. And it's probably a combination of the two, right? In any case, it's going to be a combination of the two 
or there's some degree of a kind of rational or appropriate resentment based upon actual humiliation and then some degree of like like fuck those fuck them kids like I'm, for humiliating me like i just want to get revenge right um yeah but then when that becomes the more dominant part right when the sort of vengeful part of it kind of takes over as the as the main motivator that's what scares me because i just like that's not a that's not something you can as a social as like an individual you can deal with that but at a, at a level of a social movement driven by that I, just, you, I don't think you can make a more just society and that helps fix things. It doesn't. They reject the just society, right? Um, hmm. They're not driven by that. And so, and I don't want to like demonize individuals. Uh, I, I'm talking about a social movement here, not individuals. Because um, social movements, I think, have different dynamics than the individuals would make them up. Um, and so it, there's some degree of like, maybe you just kind of have to do the same thing, like make the more just society, Right. Hmm. Uh, act as if as if that's it's possible to to engage in embrace or reproachment by doing that and then just wait for the rest of them to die off. And the next generation <laughs> won't be as that's driven by thinking. that. <gasps> yeah. and like there's some there's some residual uh, resentment hmm. that will follow. Right. Because like there's always a sense in which the, the next generation takes on some of the resentments of the previous one. But it's less so. Right. Hmm. Um, and so maybe it's just like a. You had just you make a more just society, and then you just kind of wait it out, and then hope that nothing is so destabilizing that it that it like upends your the whole like stability of your or, or organization or society in the first place. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a really a, like an unknowable feature about how to engage with with social movements of this kind that you can't really solve once it gets this far. Yeah, and I kind of tend to wonder. I kind of tend to think that like any. Any complaint derives from some unmet like need or want, right? Um, and so, like, even if somebody's complaining and they don't have as justified of a complaint as somebody who has been more explicitly targeted, we might say. Now, what we're talking about are like degrees of intensity of justification and degrees of intensity of experienced lack, right? Or of experienced, um, experience of being the targeted, right? Or of experienced plunder or something along, experienced exploitation and oppression, right? And so sometimes it is just revenge because of a perceived lost something, right? But I'd still want to know then, okay, so what is that, that, that thing that was lost, right? Is it, is it just that you're like a white middle-class dude who's angry because you want to be able to say shitty things in public and you feel like you should just be able to get away with it because you're entitled as fuck? Or is it that like you um, are like a lot of the people that I grew up with in Orange County who are white middle-class kind of trapped in a bubble and they've just been socialized in particular ways that if they had exposure to other cultures, other communities, other ideas that, um, that they wouldn't build up that kind of resentment, right? Like, I don't know. I just, I think that, I think that, um, I don't think that anybody's ever too far gone, so to speak. And I wonder if you started building the just society and, and you started like, looking for all of those sites where neo-colonial plunder is operating. I wonder if even the people who like are just out 
spitefully to get revenge because they just experienced such deep resentment. I wonder if even they too wouldn't, to some degree, you know, just a little bit, like like a micro shift, wouldn't experience um, some sort of alleviation of the lack that they're experiencing or some sort of alleviation of maybe not entirely. And I don't want to be totally naive and, and think that like everyone's just going to all of a sudden come into the light and we're going to be singing Kumbaya and holding hands. It's the um, Christian conversion of you. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to put a stone in their shoe as anthro- uh, apologist Greg Kokel used to say, just put a stone <laughs> in their shoe, just something that they can't ignore. And then one day they're going to have to deal with it, you know? Um, <laughs> But yeah, something along those lines, you know? No, and I, I totally, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you know, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I share that. I mean, I think it's really important to note that when I'm talking about this the group of people in America who have this, who are, are tilting more on the spectrum of the like vengeance side than the justified resentment side, it's interesting that it's not the rural overalls wherein barley coming out of his mouth you know, 300 pound, five foot 11 white guy. Like that's mm. not the person, even though you're probably thinking that's the person because that's the stereotype in America. That's not the person. Mm. Like, I think, I think you probably win that guy over pretty easily <laughs> actually um, with certain policy provisions. It's honestly the people who occupy this. And this is evidenced by the fact that these are the people who are most um, fervent for Trump and who took up a disproportionate number of the people on January 6th are Local tyrants, I think is what the, the literature is trying to call them now. It's people like uh, small business owners, people who own like used car businesses, right? Um, the people who make $100,000 to $200,000 a year, not the super wealthy oligarchs, right? But also not like the poor, southern, rural, white conservatives either. Hmm. It's the local tyrants, the people who used to have power, uh, a certain kind of power over their local community. They could dominate them in ways and no one could call them to task, right? The, the basically mm. the feudal lord logic who have lost that in the past mm. like 30 or 40 years. Those are the people who tend to be the ones who have the most resentment about losing that ability to dominate other people. And part of why they had this really warped logic is because they they sort of developed in a in a world where they were like stunted, where they saw dominating other people as kind of a the way to live life, right? So they never like mm-hmm. developed any sort of sense of like a meaningful life with the people where you're equals and you co-constitute one another and, and that kind of stuff. Um, they don't have that. And so they have this really stunted logic of what relation, you know, good, appropriate relations with people look like. And they're the ones who are driven more towards this. And it's important to recognize because that's very few people. It's not that many people, right? Yeah. Um, local elites are not that powerful when it comes down to it. Like the, the, the goal well, except for the church. different sort of, except for what the church. Cause this is making me think that it makes sense. The evangelicals, because you are, you're especially like with the congregational model, you're like a little fucking mini tyrant of your little community. No, that, you know, that's why the evangelical church has been so quickly driven in a different direction. And not, I, we've talked a lot in podcasts. how it's actually not that different in direction. This has been part of evangelicalism in America for its whole, uh, since its inception. Right. Um, but the reason why you've seen these kind of dramatic uh, movements of, of evangelicals towards the Trump stuff and changing a lot of their sort of political views because of it, at least ostensibly so, um, 
is because the church in a lot of parts of America is the local tyrant, right? Yeah. It has this kind of power over people that it's lost over the past mm. 40 years. And so it feels that, that loss um, of domination and power as as a loss. And so it, it has this kind of humiliation, but it's importantly not a justified one, right? It's actually just mad at a, a smidgen more equality for individuals, right? Um, <laughs> and so since it's not justified resentment, it's it's uh, it's not the kind of thing you can really gain reproachment with, right? But again, importantly, this is not like the rank and file church member or you know, the dude with barley in his mouth. This is not that. Right. This is a yes. very small group of of slightly more powerful than average people. Hmm. Or they used, to, they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of this thing comes down to, is it like, where are we investing our energies? Right? Like if we can continue, if we continue to invest in the, infrastructure and the socio-technical machines that perpetuate a neo-colonial logic through plunder, exploitation, which was going to lead to fragmentation domestically and abroad, then I think we don't have any any real pathways forward. But if we can figure out how to invest our energy, and maybe invest, people just don't like this word, and that's fine because they think that it already is like capitulating to a capitalist logic. And I don't necessarily think that's true. So maybe we don't have to use the word invest, but um, if we uh, if we shift our energies, if we spend our time, if we um, you know uh, uh, give our piety, our attention, um, you know, we we. Um, pool our resources, whatever fucking terminologies we want to use into these counter-colonial, anti-colonial um, tendencies, you know, ones that are built on community, like you said, you know, being co-participants, um, you know, uh, where we're all, where we're all um, receiving a just return on the time that we spent, where we are contributors and we are participants. Um, you know, we, we contribute with our time, energy, life, resources, and then we also partake in, in the bounties. Like, I think that's the only answer. I honestly do. Like, I, I, what does that look like? Like, yeah, we can do things like at a local level, but I think at a, we need to start like really like thinking what that looks like at a macro level as well. Yeah. I mean, it's really the only option. And I think what we're, what we're getting at is, there's probably a degree of tragedy here where you could do all the right things. You could have the perfectly just society or whatever, and it still might not work <laughs> given mm. initial conditions or whatever. Right. Yeah. But also you might make a perfectly just society that an asteroid hits and destroys the world. Like that could happen too. <laughs> right? So, um, oh that, would, that, that would be, a, that would be slightly better because at least then you tried and like, yeah, right, yeah. it's an asteroid. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. if humanity is so broken that you, that it couldn't be fixed, that would be a different level of tragedy. Um, but yeah, like there, there's some degree in which even if you do your best, you might not win. Uh, and that sucks, mm. but the, that doesn't mean therefore we shouldn't try because <laughs> we might also yeah. win. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, let's end it on that very lovely, uplifting and, and positive note, except for the tragic one of the asteroid coming and destroying all of our hard work. Uh, yeah. That, that, would, that if, would be the ultimate monkey's paw thing, right? Oh, we, we finally made a just society. We satisfied all the principles of justice. And then bam, asteroid. I want that version of don't look up, you know, like 
that's the one I want. Not the one where people are celebrating because they're like, oh, yeah, let's celebrate our cynicism. But rather the one where it's like, oh, my God, we had this joyful triumph where we came together and we solved the problem. But reality is crazy. And fuck. <laughs> we blow up the asteroid yeah. and then it sets off a cascading effect, which sends 10 more asteroids at us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that would be kind of funny. So you get a film where they they uh, avert the problems of climate change and asteroid Through international comes, cooperation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Through international cooperation and fucking everything is great. And then they're like, oh, my God. And they celebrate it. And then the next the next thing is then a fucking asteroid comes. But because of our like international cooperation, we have this really amazing strategy to actually like divert it. And so we divert it and we, we get saved. But then the asteroid comes to earth and it has some sort of like chemical pollutant and it pollutes all of our water. And so then like acid rain, like burns all of our faces or something like that. Yeah. We do everything right at the geopolitical <laughs> level and are perfectly just, yeah. and then it just fucks us over into <laughs> extinction. <laughs> uh, that's so good. All right, let's wrap this up and let's move on to the sticky leaves. All right. So this is the segment of the podcast where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning and a potentially meaningless universe. So, Troy, what is making you smile this week? So I've been watching this show lately called For All Mankind. Have you seen it? No. Or heard of it? No. I haven't heard of it. It's an, it's an Apple TV, uh, whatever, the Apple streaming service. Um, and... It's done by uh, Ronald Moore, who did the Battlestar Galactica reboot back in the 2000s. That was so great. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I like the show. It's not great. My sticky leaves isn't about the show so much as about the kind of concept of the show. So the concept is it's an alternative history where the space race in the 60s uh, goes a different way. So the idea is basically uh, Sergei Korolev, who is the Russian um, he wasn't a cosmonaut, but he was like a some kind of like rocket engineer or something who helped uh, build and design the first Sputnik or whatever, right? And so I guess he died um, in the middle of the Sputnik program. And so that kind of set the Sputnik program back in a way that allowed the U.S. to overtake it. And then, and then once the U.S. had kind of, there was no like arms race anymore in space at that point. So the, the alternative history is basically Sergei Korolev doesn't die. And so the Russians continuously one up the U S and so the U S has to one up them. So the space okay. race continues, uh, indefinitely, um, with like building, um, like military bases on the moon and, and shit like that. Um, and I'm, I'm still in the first season, so it's still like in the seventies, but already like Ted Kennedy becomes president. Um, <laughs> and, and Nixon uh, doesn't. So, uh, or Nixon is, uh, he still gets removed from, from water, via Watergate, but I forget exactly how it all works out. But um, yeah, it's an interesting little alternative history. But the thing about it that I, that really gets me is like, fucking space is awesome. Yeah. Like, I, I, I was that kid that loved just like looking at the stars mm. and at night and going to somewhere where there wasn't a lot of light pollution and thinking about like what the fuck's going on in those places and how these all of the other worlds exist and Mm. I've always opined and, and and desired to have like the world before electricity just mm. for not because I want to get rid of all the comforts of that, but because of what you'd be able to see, you'd be able to witness, right? The heavens in a way that 
people before electricity were able to and how amazing that would be. Um, and it's just, man, it was so awesome that we were as like a, as a collective, as a society, fully invested in space exploration. Like everybody was into it, man. Right. Mm. NASA was like the country's team. Right. Mm. And like, there's some, there's some bad stuff there too. Like why does it have to be competitive with a different country and like putting missiles on the moon is like dumb as shit. Like why do you, like, why would <laughs> right. you do that? There's no point to doing that. It's just stupid one up and shit. Right. And that's all totally correct as far as being dumb, right? And a lot of the motivations for a lot of this stuff is, is super stupid and and, uh, and mundane as well, right? But that doesn't change the fact that, like, it's fucking awesome that we got to go to the moon and, like, explore space and stuff. And it's really a sad thing that that's just not a thing anymore. Mm. It's just kind of sad that that was a huge deal. And any, anybody, I imagine, who was a kid in the 60s, probably felt like being an, I mean, there's a reason why being an astronaut was like the thing that every kid wanted to be when they were growing up. Um, cause it was the coolest fucking thing. Right. And Fuck then now yeah. kids, kids want to be YouTubers. It's like, oh, what gross. have we done? So the number one job that kids want to be when they grow up as a YouTuber. What have we done? So gross. <laughs> what better evidence do you need that we fucked up the youth than that? <laughs> oh my God. Can you imagine going back to like ancient fucking Mesopotamia and be like, guys, we have traveled. You know, those stars up there. We've trapped. You know, that moon that you worship. We have been there. We have stood on it. We have like hung out there and we have sent satellites out there. But then we just stopped. But then we just didn't care anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Then then we stopped doing it. We didn't. We did it. They'd look at you like, what? That's like almost dis... You know how they talk about in like uh, like meditative circles or in like fucking like, like wellness, like like honoring your body? That's like that's like just dishonoring your fucking... That's just like dishonoring your, your capacities. That's just like dishonoring your imagination and dishonoring your ability, you know? It's like a total dishonor to it. It's like it's there. Just what, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's, it's totally baffling. And I know a lot of people kind of don't like this movie, but you remember The Martian with Matt Damon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's just justified critiques of that film and stuff, but I really loved it. Just, just at least for the fact that, like, it really exemplifies how a human being taken out of the sort of competitive logic of, of like late capitalism, whatever you want to call it, right. Where we're all stunted in these ways about what we actually value and and want in the world. Like just put them on fucking Mars and like gain knowledge, learn how to survive, make your shit into potatoes or whatever it is that he does. Right. Um, and like make water, like construct water. Um, that's just fucking awesome. Right. And there's something yeah. like you don't have to have this like frontier mindset of I'm going to conquer unknown worlds and stuff like that. It doesn't have to be like that. It can just be like exploration. That's just a really it's a really pure kind of uh, drive that human beings have for knowledge. Well, that's Star right? Trek. That, right. That's that's the whole world of Star Trek. It's like they live in a post scarcity world and they're like, what are we going to do? We're just going to go fucking explore. Of course, then they run into fucking people in outer space that they fight with. But but the idea is, is it's like, no, what if we could get to that like post scarcity world? Imagine the ways that we could free up our creative capacities. Yeah. And, you know, the reason I, I didn't bring up Star Trek as an example is because there's there's something about like a, a sort of utopia has to take place for to provide the means for that kind of exploration, right? Um, for the Federation. But 
the thing about like what I like about for all mankind and, and, and just the whole kind of like experience or the whole phenomenon of, of, of the NASA program in the sixties and seventies is like, it was super imperfect. It had all these stupid motivations. It was heavily driven by Nixon's paranoia, at least in the show. Uh, it has all these like weird military, uh, components that make no sense and that are totally stupid. And this competitive thing <laughs> with the Soviet Union, which is totally unnecessary, but still like the astronauts, their desire to go to the moon is entirely pure even amidst all that bullshit. Right. Hmm. And like, it's, it's cool. And, and they're all imperfect too. And there are, you know, some of them are dicks and, and, and whatever, but there's something about that drive to just explore. Right. And to figure out new shit and find new stuff. That's just, that's kind of awesome. And it's sad that we don't have that anymore. So yeah. uh, my sticky leaves is not necessarily for the show. Although I think it's a good show and I enjoy it. And I'd recommend it to anybody who's into this kind of stuff, but it's more just like, Cool that we had a time where people cared about this stuff. Like no, no seven-year-old who's watching Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, you know, on the moon on their shitty, you know, square TV, um, cared about like beating the Soviet Union. I don't think, right? What they cared mm. about was, oh my God, they're on the moon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And that's awesome. And that's pure. And we should, we should like mm. we should kind of recapitulate that. Like we should live in a mm. world that's the kind of thing that happens. Luxury space yeah. communism. Isn't that what they call it? Uh, fully automated luxury gay space communism is That's the right. full new one. But yeah, yeah. My um, sticky leaves is the space part right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've just been, you know what it is, man? Our imaginations have been colonized and mm-hmm. our creative spirits have been cynicized. Yeah, bludgeoned. And yeah. Bludgeoned. And we. We don't believe in good things anymore. We don't. Nope. We don't. we re- we really do not. As as a as a society, as a collective whole, we just don't think. You know how they say like like uh like you know like people like you deserve good things. We don't think we do deserve good things. We don't. <laughs> we th- we think we deserve whatever the new sort of formulaic superficial Netflix show is. Uh, about teenagers fucking or we deserve um whatever the new fucking um marvel adaptation is or we deserve whatever the fucking new model of car is or we deserve the relationship that is gonna kind of like i don't know satisfy some base needs we just we don't have like the aspirations for like the fucking the summum bonum you know the fucking greatest (laughs) good Like, let's bring that shit. Like, I want the greatest good in my relationship. I want the greatest good in my transportation, you know? Like, I want the greatest good in my my fashion and in my art and in my friendships. That's what I want. I want to give us that shit. And, and please, nobody come in my mentions and tell me that this is what drives Elon Musk and <laughs> Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson or whoever else is trying to fly their the billionaire space jets to the moon. Like, no, not that I'm talking no. about the group project where somebody who's a fucking scientist, right? A PhD or an engineer or whatever, like pure, not on the backs of like, you know, Emerald mine slaves in South Africa or Amazon workers who piss in bottles, not on their back, but just someone who's no. an engineer or scientist devoting their life to understanding and to knowledge, and they want to go to the moon for that. Not because they want to have, like, the biggest dick in the room. That's not the same thing. Not even close. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm into it. Yeah, man, I was obsessed with space. I'm still obsessed with space. I I was recently on my on my holiday with my partner over the the Christmas break. We on our drive back, we were staying at like in this fucking tiny house on this farm out in the middle of nowhere. And we pulled up and it was a fucking brutal couple of days of driving because of like flooding and all this other crazy madness. And we pulled up to this farm and I got out of the car and I looked up at the sky. I don't think I've ever seen that many stars, man. <laughs> it was like, holy shit. I saw the Milky Way. You know when you see like the the, the actual like the white from the Milky Way? Mm-hmm. That, it was like that. I was like, this is crazy, man. So beautiful. It is, man. There's got to be a connection between light pollution and just no longer finding the heavens to be as magnificent, like not experiencing the sublime like you experienced in that moment. Yeah. And, and the death of this, of this like group desire to travel, to explore space. Like there has to be a connection there because you can't see that shit and not Mm. just be filled with awe and overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Yeah. There's got to be. Yeah. I mean, there's there's theories about like, you know, uh, life in the city and a tendency towards like atheism and not believing in the heavens in that sense. And but when you're out more in a rural society or an agricultural society, the kind of there's a seems to be a, a, a correlation that there's more of a tendency towards connection with nature or the divine or something like that. So I'm sure oh, I'm sure there's what's up. That's interesting because like the secularization thesis usually trades more on like, well, the reason why people in the city tend more towards being irreligious is because they're surrounded by many different religions and many different backgrounds. And so it's harder to believe that there's a single one that's right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an intellectualized version of it. What you're saying is more like, no, it's the experience that's different. Yeah. If you're disconnected from the heavens. Yeah. If you're disconnected in that way from the heavens and from nature, you just you no longer had those overwhelming sublime experiences yeah. anymore, and then that yet deactivates the the impulse or whatever that's in there. Yeah, well, because when you're in an herb, when you're in um, a concrete jungle like New York City or something like that, everything around you is is human made, right? Everything, everywhere you look, it's human, hmm. human, 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 human. So then man becomes the measure of all things, right? Whereas when you get out into the fucking forest you're out in the smokies bro and you're with your dog sufi and you've got your notepad <laughs> and you're reading some fucking walt whitman or some shit like that and you sit down on a right rock now, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you sit down on a rock and you look over that valley you the fuck you are you just get like a like you just get sucked in and you're like oh my god you know then you're a pantheist yeah exactly exactly <laughs> exactly bro that's what happens that's what happened. That's that's why fucking Emerson and Thoreau and those motherfuckers were all transcendentalists because they were just out in nature all the time, man. And that's yeah. why that's why Sartre is such a fucking atheist and why he hates nature because he gets out to nature and he's like, <laughs> I don't want the immensity. I want to be controlled by humanity everywhere. And that's why he felt <laughs> that's why he felt bad faith everywhere because he's like, man, this shit is oppressive. Oh <laughs> 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 uh, shit. All right, let's go ahead. And no, wrap I like up that. There. So, so it's not really about it's not the secularization is not really about like having all your needs met by the welfare state or by being surrounded by a bunch of different cultures and ethnic backgrounds. Really, we just got to shut the lights off every once in a while. We should yeah. have like one day a month where we just shut off all the lights at night. Dude, that's actually kind of awesome. We're just coming up with sweet. so many good ideas for. for- <laughs> 
fucking TV shows and movies and shit. We got to write this down. Okay. We might solve a lot of problems with that. Dude. Dude. Dude, let's make a let's make an, a, a prestige HBO drama where turn the lights society off. Where where it gets called lights off. Yeah, lights <laughs> off. <laughs> Once a month. Uh, yeah. Can can what we wrap be different this about in? society if we did this? <laughs> can we wrap this into our other TV show idea where this is a part of that TV show? I don't know, man. Maybe I got like this it. is like that. This is part <laughs> of that renewal process you know i don't want i'm trying not to give too much away here because i know motherfuckers steal shit so you know we got yeah this, mm. ain't, ain't no one gonna steal this idea of ours <laughs> maybe lights okay. off is just a, a movie we'll see yeah it, it's, it, although it sounds like a horror film it sounds like a blumhouse film but whatever well no, you the, know the uh, cool thing would be like it just places you in media rest into this society right as it's approaching, it's like it's like purge, like a reverse purge. It's like yeah. good purge, optimistic purge. So they're all preparing for the lights off night, right? And then we just follow like three or four different characters as they engage in whatever activities they're going to engage in during the lights off night. Dude, that's actually fucking sick. This sounds like something <laughs> that Ari Aster would direct. You know, <laughs> fuck. Yeah, and it, it could be like, yeah. So there's some horror element. There's some action. There's some romance. It's got everything. Oh, dude, I'm so into this idea. Okay, <laughs> I'm so into this. All right. Well, if you're a director out there, or if you're a producer and you're a financier and you want to know more about this, you hit us up at uh, owls underscore at underscore dawn on Twitter. You email us at <laughs> owls at dawn podcast at gmail dot com. We're going to get out of here. Um, uh, as Troy said at the outset, we've got a Patreon poll that is live now. Um, so if you are a patron, please go and make sure you cast your vote so we can do the next patron-led topic and we can address that. If you're not a patron yet, uh, please go to patreon.com slash dawn and throw us a, a little bit of coin. I think that's pretty much it. Um, unless there's anything else that you've got to say, man. Uh, just one thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Dani Amerikanski. Oh.